The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word. To do so, we always make sure we have a few moments of silent prayer, so if you need to use 1 John 1, 9, you have the opportunity, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that we have this privilege and opportunity to gather together as a body of believers to worship you through the study of your word. There is nothing more important in our lives than that we learn how to think about your creation, about our lives, and about our thinking as you have told us, that we may make your thoughts our thoughts and your ways our ways, Father. Now, as we study our, continue our study in Judges, we pray you would help us to see how the principles we study apply to our own lives and our own thinking, that we may be challenged and transformed into the character of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 2, second chapter of Judges, and we are down to the 11th verse. The 11th verse. There we read, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. Now, one of the things that is often overlooked in in Bible study and in exegesis is the whole concept of literary structure. See, the Bible isn't as simple as some people want to make it. The writers, the authors of Scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote some of the best literature that's ever been written in all of human history, and it employs a number of different Uh, literary devices in order to communicate doctrine. And some are a little more subtle than others, and it's unfortunate that when when, um, you live in a society that has a failure in the education system, and people don't understand how to read, or they don't understand principles of literature, they can't read and understand what they're reading. There's very little comprehension, and so when you get beyond a certain phase of just the uh, surface meaning of the text, somehow it it even challenges people who ought to know what they're, what they're doing. And the writers of Scripture use these literary devices as ways to present and organize the material to bring out certain emphases within the text. And those emphases are there because the Holy Spirit wants to draw our attention to those uh, particular principles and to highlight certain things in, in the ancient world, of course, everything was handwritten. They didn't have punctuation devices. They didn't have, uh, like a modern computer, where you have bold-faced type or italics or underlining. So you highlighted things through the way you organized your material and its particular structure. Now, one particular way in which 
material is organized, one literary device is called a, a chiasm. Now, a chiasm is defined as a literary device that organizes a series, any kind of series, but in this case, a series of events in such a way that the second half of the series is a mirror reflection of the first half. And the purpose is to emphasize the, the center events much as a frame highlights and emphasizes the picture it encases. Okay, it looks something like this. You may have a list of six devices, for example, in this uh, illustration, and they would be enumerated A, B, C, and then the second half of the list, which are distinct items, mirror or reflect the first three. So they would be called C prime, B prime, and then A prime. It's called a chiasm because that, it, although it looks like a V on its side, it looks like the left-hand side of an X, or the Greek letter chi, or key. So this is called a chiasm, and it's designed to draw attention to what? To the C, to those center point um, uh, events. Now, in this particular case, you only have six examples in the list, but sometimes there may only be four. Sometimes there may be 20 or 30. In fact, what we'll see when we get into the main body of Judges, from Judges 3-7 down through the end of chapter 16, that the entire structure is based on a chiasm. And the center point of the chiasm is the episode with Gideon because Gideon provides a transition point from judges that are more positive and less negative to judges who are more negative and less positive. And the writer is drawing our attention to that because of its, of its significance. So when we look at these first three verses that we're studying this morning, Judges 2, 11 through 13, the basic concepts here are organized according to a chiasm. First of all, we have the statement that the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. That's 11b. They served the Baals. Now, Baal was a term for Lord. It's a Canaanite word. And in the, in the Hebrew, what you have is a word that looks something like this, Baal. And it's transliterated B, and then this is a vowel point A. Then this is an odd, one of those odd letters in Hebrew that's more like a glottal stop. It's not really a vowel. It's just sort of a, like an extremely soft G, so it's usually written like that. And then you have your second vowel here, and then... Uh, your final letter L there. Now in English it's usually pronounced Baal, but in Hebrew it is Baal. So you have your Baal, and this term means Lord or Master in Canaanite, and it came to be applied to a particular uh, deity in the Canaanite pantheon. Now in the Canaanite pantheon, the highest deity was the god Ale. E-L. This is Aleph, which is also a soft glottal stop written like that. E-L. The god El, he's roughly uh, analogous to the Greek or Roman god uh, Saturn or Uranus. And he is uh, basically becomes uh, usurped by his son, Baal. So he has a, a son, Baal, and this Baal has a number of titles depending on what city he was with or what you were emphasizing. Sometimes he's called Baal Hadad, sometimes he's called uh, Baal of the Storm and various other titles. That's why you have the term listed in the Hebrew text with an I-M ending, which is the plural, because there were all kinds of Baals depending on which city you were in and they had different emphases. And Baal is the storm god. And because storm brings rain, he is represented by uh, lightning, thunder, and of course in an agricultural society, one of the most important factors is getting rain at the proper time of year so that the crops will produce and you'll have uh, a successful and prosperous year because of the abundance of crops. So he becomes associated with fertility. Now, he has a half-sister, Astarte, called Astarte or the Asherim. Uh, there are various terms. This is Aphrodite or Venus in the Greek or Roman systems. 
and she too is also a, associated with fertility. And it is, according to the mythology, it is when they procreate, the result is fertility, and so this is then imitated in, in the worship where if you were a farmer and you wanted to have good crops, then before you planted in order to uh, somehow motivate the gods to be gracious to you and kind to you, you would go down to the temple and you would uh, pay one of the uh, temple prostitutes and you would go in and you would have sex and that would be a symbolic act of what would be taking place in the heavens between, the, uh, between Astarte and Baal and the result is fertility. And so it's nothing more than the common health and wealth gospel that's being promoted today. You know, that's the biggest problem we have is we worship success rather than God. And this was just the ancient pagan form of that that's concretized into a physical idol form of worship. So this is what's going on here. Now, in terms of the structure, they served the Baals in 11b. Then the next statement is they abandoned Yahweh. Now, in the English of the New American Standard, it says they forsook Yahweh, but the Hebrew word is much stronger than that. They abandoned Yahweh, and they pursued other gods. It's very aggressive. It's a clear statement of negative volition and rejection of God. So they served the Baals, they abandoned Yahweh, they pursued other gods. In 12b, then in 12c, verse 12c, we see that they bowed themselves down to them. That means they worshipped them. This is the expression of obedience. This is what worship is. Worship is not, at its core meaning, it is not coming together and singing hymns of praise to God. Technically, in the Bible, that's praise. That is not worship. It might be a subcategory of worship, but it is not worship. And in the common ignorant parlance of modern evangelicalism, we have come to make worship the key terminology for singing. And so now we have a, uh, in churches, they have what they call worship leaders. It's no longer the pastor who knows the truth and teaches the truth. It's now the song leader. And the emphasis has shifted from the content of learning what God says to me so that I can respond in obedience to Him and to just singing praises to God. But praise is a response to what God has done in my life. But if there's no content, how do you know what God's done in your life? So then it just becomes a mystical, subjective experience, and the emphasis then becomes on how you feel and your personal psychological state rather than on the Word of God. And worship in the Scripture is responding in submission and obedience to God. And we will see that this is a in relationship to the main verb used in verse 11b for serving the Baals. It's the Hebrew verb avad, which means to serve or to, uh, sometimes it means to work, but it is a key term for worship. And so worship means to obey God. Now, if you're going to obey someone, that means you are responding to their uh, authority and to what they are telling you to do. And if you don't spend any time teaching the, word, teaching the Word or learning the Word, then you have no clue what God wants you to do. You don't understand the plan of God. You can't understand the grace of God. And all you can do is operate on emotion, and that's unfortunately where we've come in many of our churches. So we see the structure here. They served the Baals, they abandoned Yahweh, they pursued other gods, they worshipped them. Then they abandoned Yahweh in 13a, so they forsook the Lord. And then 13b, they served the Baals and the Astartes or the Ashtaroth, depending on how I transliterated that, Astartes. So... What you see here is the center point of this structure is the statements in 12b and 12c that they, they pursued other gods and they worshipped them. And that's what the writer of this book wants us to pay attention to is where the Israelites have come as a result of their negative volition and their rejection of God. Now let's begin, now that we understand where we're headed and why we have to understand the mechanics that have taken place here, let's stop and go back and look at the text in its detail. First of all, verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the first thing we need to notice here is that they obviously have negative volition. They have rejected God and they are operating on their own concept 
of what, uh, what will bring them success. The problem is their negative volition. That is the core problem. That's the underlying problem. When we ask the question, why does Israel, through this period of the judges, go through the personal, military, economic, financial, and family disasters, we must determine the root cause. The root cause is not going to be the result of some crisis. It's not the result of the crisis in education. It's not a result of the fact that the parents failed, though they did. It's not a crisis of health care. It's not a crisis of prescription drugs. See, that's, we're applying this to our own time. It's not a crisis of handguns. It's not a crisis of violence. It's not a crisis of race. It's a spiritual crisis. That's what underlies all their problems. This, don't treat the symptoms. You have to treat the disease. And the disease is negative volition and rejection of God's authority. And if you go out and just uh, try to treat the symptoms rather than the disease, then you're doing nothing more than, than trying to polish the brass on a sinking ship. There will be no change. And this is one of the problems that we have seen throughout the ages, is that when um, Christians start looking at all the problems and they see social problems, then immediately they think the solution is to go out and attack the, the problem rather than its underlying cause. And the only thing that can solve the underlying cause and cure the underlying cause is the gospel and for a nation and for individuals to turn back to the truth and get back to the gospel and following divine viewpoint. Unless that happens, unless there is an internal change based on regeneration, there can be no true reversal of the decline of a culture or an individual because all of the problems that we focus on, and this, may be, this is true for you as an individual as much as it's true for a nation, the problems you focus on are merely the symptoms of the underlying problem of negative volition and rejection of the truth of God's Word and a violation of divine priorities. Once a person starts thinking that the problem is political, ethical, economic, or some other aspect, then they, get, uh, they begin to focus on the solution as the means to happiness and the means to uh, success. And what happens there is as soon as you start focusing on the symptom rather than the, the disease, you are already involved in a major problem because you are rejecting the divine analysis. And if you reject the divine analysis of the social problem, that is the problem. The divine analysis says that it's spiritual, it's not the symptoms, it's not abortion, it's not health care, it's not economics, it's not even the lack of character among political leaders. That is all a manifestation of the real problem, which is negative volition. So what happens is as society comes along, you start looking at, at these symptoms, you've rejected the divine analysis. Now what have you done? You have said that man, on his own, apart from the Word of God, is capable of defining the problem and of prescribing the solution. To do that, you have already bought into, whether you realize it or not, a value system, a system of norms and standards to determine what is right and what is wrong. And remember, that is the essence of the problem in Israel in the period of the judges. They did, everyone did, what was right in their own eyes. They got into relativism. So you get out on the street and you start asking people what the real problem is and you're going to get a hundred different answers. And that's because everybody's operating on a slightly different scale of values or priority system or different norms and standards. Relativism puts the focus on man as the definer of right and wrong and of absolutes, whereas the Word of God puts the focus on God and that is exactly what we see in this first verse. 
evil is not just some relative term. It is evil in the sight of the Lord. It is God who defines what right and wrong is. It's not man. Right and wrong is not something that we've discovered over the ages in some evolutionary process of uncovering what works and what doesn't work. And so what works is is good and what doesn't work is evil. That is not the source of norms and standards. The source of norms and standards is the Word of God. It is evil because God says it is evil. Now, the word that is used here for evil is the Hebrew word ra, R-A. And it can mean something that is just destructive. It can have a non-moral sense of something that is just disagreeable, something that is bad, something that is that doesn't work or is a failure. But it also, or in most places, it has a spiritual sense and it, and it illustrates the violation of the will of God. It is evil because God says it is evil. It is evil in the sight of the Lord. And it is focused on idolatry. Notice how it is expressed. They did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. The root of all evil is the transfer of allegiance and priority from God to something else in the created order. This is what happens over and over again. Now, in the ancient world, they had idols that were physical. And so we think, well, we don't do that. Well, in our culture, we do it, but we are much more sophisticated and we serve idols of the mind. What they were doing in the ancient world was they were looking to the idols to solve the problems in their life and to provide them with happiness and success and meaning in life. And that, of course, was the road to absolute failure for them. And over and over again, throughout the Old Testament, when God says, so-and-so did evil, and you see it especially when he gets into the northern kingdom and the kings in, the, in, in Israel, says, so-and-so did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they followed in the idolatry or in the religion of, of uh, Jeroboam or they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. So evil is almost exclusively defined in terms of religion. In terms of religion. Now, remember, we all have a sin nature. That sin nature is composed of two basic areas. An area of strength that produces human good, and an area of weakness that produces personal sins. Now, when most people think of sin and the sin nature they immediately jump to some sort of overt sin. They think of murder. They think of some kind of criminal action. They think perhaps of sins of the tongue, such as lying or gossip, perhaps. But very rarely do people think that the sin nature produces good. The sin nature produces all kinds of good because the Scripture says that that the only way we can produce the kind of good that has any sort of merit with God is when it's done under the power of God the Holy Spirit, and that is divine good. And an unbeliever cannot produce anything of good towards God. Isaiah 65, 6 says, or 64, 6 says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It doesn't say all of our unrighteousness. It says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. So the best that we can do does not impress God at all. It is nothing more than human good. Now, religion is human good. Christianity is not a religion. Religion is trying to gain the approval of God through ritual, through good deeds, through good works, through going through some sort of uh, daily uh, routine, somehow thinking that if I read my Bible every day, if I go to church, that somehow I'll gain some brownie points with God, and so life will be a little bit better. That's nothing more than than superstition and uh, treating God as if he's some sort of magic charm. And it's an affront to God. And so God hates all kinds of religion. But religion basically occurs, we get involved in any kind of religion when we start serving something other than God as the source of happiness, joy, stability in our lives. And that's exactly what is taking place in Israel. They have rejected God as the source of happiness in Israel. And so they are going to... Uh, get involved in the Canaanite religion. They look around they say, well, these guys seem to be pretty successful. They've had good crops year after year. They've been here in the land. So apparently they've discovered something that works. So let's uh, get involved, learn their system of religion. Their gods must be pretty helpful. 
so we will follow their gods and we will reject God, the God that brought us out of Israel. So this is the symptom of the paganism of that society is that they began to worship the fertility gods. That is nothing more than a worship of prosperity and success, which is something that is very typical of our own society. We worship the abstract idols of success, money, the things that money can buy. In fact, idolatry is nothing more than putting any detail in life, whatever you think gives you meaning and happiness, maybe money, maybe friends, maybe family, maybe sex, maybe a social life, maybe it's the things that money can buy, maybe it's some kind of status, maybe it's education, whatever it might be, when you think that achieving that detail of life is what is going to give you meaning and purpose in life, then that is idolatry. You are putting that in the place of God, and God is no longer the number one priority in your life. Now, God has given us all the details of life, and they are valid, and they are for our enjoyment. But they are not to be worshipped. They are not the source of meaning in life, and that's what we do in, in idolatry. Now, the sin nature is motivated by a lust pattern. Those lust patterns produce trends, and those trends go in different directions. One trend is towards asceticism, legalism, and intellectually towards rationalism. And this leads towards moral degeneracy. See, just because somebody is moral and good doesn't mean they're, they're spiritual. The Pharisees were extremely moral. They were wonderful people. They had a great code of ethics, and they stuck to it very strictly. But they rejected God, they rejected Jesus Christ, and they were moral degenerates. In the opposite direction, you have those who give in to the trend of licentiousness, lasciviousness, antinomianism, and intellectually that is related to irrationalism and mysticism, and this leads to immoral degeneracy. And what we have in the, the paganism of any culture is a combination of both moral degeneracy and immoral degeneracy. The only thing is we tend to identify the immoral degeneracy uh, a lot more clearly. It's, it's more overt. Now, Judges 2.11 states, The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And that word for served is the cal imperfect of the Hebrew word abad. Now, when Adam was created, Adam was placed in the Garden of Eden, and he was told that he was to work the garden. And that word that was used there in Genesis chapter 2 is this same Hebrew word. It is the verb avad, A-V-A, it's a soft D, so it's uh, almost like a soft T-H, avad, and it means to serve, it means to work, and it also implies worship. And so from that, in Genesis chapter 2, we see that a vital function of man was to work the garden, to fulfill the mission God gave him, and that is a worship concept. See, worship isn't just what happens on Sunday morning in church. Worship is what you do with your life in serving God. It, and in order to serve God, you have to know what God's will is. So that's why we say that the highest form of worship is to learn the Word of God. Because that gives us the framework of thinking in terms of reality as God defines reality so that we can serve Him and this makes our life a life of worship. But in contrast to that, the Israelites rejected God and they served the Baals. They worked for the Baals. They worshipped the Baals and they forsook the Lord. When they forsook the Lord, this is the cal imperfect of the Hebrew word azav. A, Z, A, and this is a soft B. It doesn't have a dogish, so it's pronounced like a V. Azav. And azav means to abandon, to give up, to ignore, and it's in a softer sense, it means just to treat, some, to treat God lightly or to be complacent about God. See, complacency, it's usually when you're deteriorating in your spiritual life, you begin again by just simply uh, getting distracted by other details of life. 
something comes along and, and uh, you have the opportunity to do this, or maybe you have to work later, or you just get busy in life, whatever it might be, and before long it's easier to not go to Bible class, easier to not listen to a tape, than it is to, to um, make it a priority to always be in church and to be learning doctrine or to be listening to a tape. You begin to get distracted, so God is no longer the highest priority in life. It's work, it's survival, it's just getting done all the things we need to, and we justify it that way. Well, I have so many demands on my time, I, I just don't have time to get there. And so that's why we have a tape ministry. I understand that. That's reality. Sometimes jobs interfere, sometimes other things interfere. But that does not mean that we can't get doctrine on a daily basis. We continuously have to be reminded. That's why we don't charge for tapes. The Word of God should never be up for sale. So tapes are always made available to everybody in the congregation on a grace basis because you need to be listening to doctrine day in and day out so that you do not become complacent and start down the road of spiritual decline. This is what has taken place in Israel. They have moved from complacency towards God to active abandonment of God. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers. See, the reason... The writer emphasizes this, is that God is the God who has worked in human history. They have empirical data before them from the memory of their fathers and forefathers of how God acted in history. We do not worship a God that is just somehow out there that we can't really come to know. The God of the Bible is a God who is intimately involved in history, a God who has always acted in history, and whose revelation is always based upon his acts in history. He validates his revelation through confirmations in space-time history. So therefore the writer emphasizes that this is not just some abstract concept of God, but it is, a, it is God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and, and they rejected him, so it shows their lack of gratitude, their lack of grace orientation, They've rejected the God who performed all the fantastic miracles and deliverance for them, bringing them across the Red Sea, taking them through the wilderness for 40 years, and then eventually bringing them into the land, conquering the Canaanites at Jericho at Ai and the other battles. And so they've rejected this incredible God who has done so much for them, for gods who promised to do much less for them, simply to make them prosperous. And that, unfortunately, is the way people are so often. We forget that God has done everything for us at the cross. He did so much for us. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to go to the cross and there to pay the penalty for every single sin that we've ever committed. He has done everything. And in that spiritual death, that spiritual substitutionary death on the cross, Jesus Christ provided for us everything we need in life. He didn't leave anything out. He provided the basis for handling any situation, any problem, any heartache in life. He gave us the framework for being able to handle success so that it doesn't destroy us, so that we can have happiness and peace and stability in our lives, whether we're going through good times or bad times, adversity or blessing, and we can have a stable mindset and never be overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. As soon as you start making your mental attitude, your happiness, your stability dependent upon what you have or what you don't have or how people around you behave, then you enslave yourself to that person or those events. You're saying, my mental health, my stability is dependent upon how that person responds to me. And at that point, you just said that everything's under their control, nothing's in my control. Or you say that, that um, I'll have happiness if I can achieve these this level of success or have these possessions. So happiness now is defined by having or not having, and you've basically said that, that your happiness is outside of your control and dependent upon these things. Well, that is nothing more than slavery, and it is serving those things, and it's just another form of idolatry. So they have uh, rejected the God who did everything for them, to follow gods who promise to do much less for them and, in fact, not even gods. So this shows the paganism, the paganization, rather, of the culture. They've rejected God, and whenever you reject God, there's a vacuum that forms in the soul, and something else is going to take God's place. 
whenever we're out of fellowship and we start following something else as another priority, that is what has taken the place of God. So whenever you reject the God of the Bible, something else takes its place as your God. They followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed themselves down to them. That's the word for worship, and it means to prostrate yourself, and it is a sign of obedience and submission to authority. So rather than submitting to the authority of God, they bowed themselves down to these idols, and thus they provoked the Lord to anger. And the conclusion, so they forsook the Lord, and they served the Baal and the Ashtoreth. Now, what we see here is what we call reversionism. Now, I want to take a little time, few moments to review reversionism because this is what's happening on a national scale in Israel and it is the result of what has taken place on a massive personal scale in the nation. And this is the same thing that happens today and happens in the lives of many Christians and this is why they end up uh, in misery in life. So, we'll begin with a definition of reversionism. First of all, reversionism is an act of reversing or backing up or going in the opposite way or a state of being so turned. It's an act of reversing, backing up, or going in the opposite direction. Secondly, reversionism is the act of reverting to a former state, a former habit or belief, or the practice of pre-salvation sinning. It's going back to live like you were when you were an unbeliever, thinking like you thought when you were an unbeliever, acting as you acted when you were an unbeliever. So then, reversionism is a reversal of your priorities. It is putting something else in the place of God. It's a reversal of your priorities, your attitudes, your affections, the object of your personal love, accompanied by the destruction of your impersonal love. Now, let's look at that. Reversionism is a reversal of the object of your personal love. Rather than having personal love for God, and that being what motivates you in life, you put your affection on something else in the created order, and that becomes what motivates you in life. Money, success, happiness, sex, social life, whatever it may be. As a result of... Shifting your personal love from God, it destroys your capacity to exercise impersonal love because now you can no longer function on unconditional love towards someone because you are dependent upon something in the created order to provide you with happiness. And now whenever things don't go the way you think they ought to go, Instead of being able to handle the situation in impersonal love, now you handle it from a position of frustration, anger, bitterness, resentment, hostility, and so your, your soul becomes more and more churned up from these mental attitude sins and this overall sense of frustration, and you begin to, it begins to affect all of your relationships. So reversionism reverses your priorities. You put other things in place of God, your attitudes, your affections, you're placing your affections on something other than God. It reverses the object of your personal love and destroys your capacity for impersonal love, which will in turn destroy your ability to have any any significant relationship with people. The result is it changes your lifestyle, habits, and your personality. All will be affected. See, as believers, we are designed to advance to spiritual maturity. But in reversionism, we reverse course, and, we can, and our lives cannot be distinguished from that of an unbeliever. As believers, we start thinking more and more along the lines of human viewpoint, cosmic philosophy, and paganism, so that we don't look and act any different from the unbeliever down the street. And, you, and at that point, you begin to say, well, doctrine really doesn't seem to work. I'm managing to find some personal pleasure and happiness apart from that so now you become more and more complacent to God and other things begin to distract you even more from the from the worship of God until you eventually self-destruct there are eight stages in reversionism we start off with our spiritual advance and then we start into the decline 
The first stage is reaction and distraction. Reaction and distraction. What happens is some circumstance changes in our lives and we either become distracted by it or we react to it with frustration, mental attitude, sins, bitterness, anger, something of that nature. So immediately we are out of fellowship because there is sin in the life and rather than confessing sin and being immediately restored to fellowship and the filling of the Holy Spirit and putting our priorities back on doctrine, we stay out of fellowship. And when we're out of fellowship, then we begin then we begin to get further and further enmeshed in carnality. Romans 12, 2 and 3 says, Stop being conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renovation of your thought. What happens when we're out of fellowship and we're operating on carnality is that there is an attraction, a natural attraction and affinity between the thinking of cosmic of the cosmic system and our sin nature. For the cosmic system is a system of thinking, it's not actions. You know, in the old days, in some churches they talk about worldliness as, as women who wear makeup or women who don't wear dresses, they wear slacks or going to movies or you know, smoking, chewing, whatever it might be, drinking, those things, dancing, are all identified as worldliness. The Bible doesn't talk about overt activities as worldliness. The Bible talks about a way of thinking as worldliness. And so what happens is, in carnality, the sin nature has an affinity with the thinking of the world system. For the world system is the, provides the rationales and the justifications for our sinfulness and for operating on our sin nature. So we are commanded to stop being conformed to the world, to, that is, to cosmic thinking, but to be transformed by the reformation or renovation of our thinking that we may prove that the will of God is good and perfect. We are to advance spiritually and not regress spiritually. Now, what we learn from looking at passages like Romans 12 is that we are to learn how to think correctly. That means there is a right way to think and a wrong way to think. Our thinking is to be conformed to doctrine, which means that there is an absolute truth that defines reality. And so what we're, what we're doing in the spiritual life is learning the Word of God so that our thinking conforms to the reality of God's thinking. Reality is what God says it is, not what we think it is, not what society may think it is, not what uh, philosophers may say it is, not what psychologists may infer from a vast host of empirical studies, but it is what the Word of God says that it is. So there are certain boundaries in which we must operate and think, and that is called divine viewpoint. So if we are going to be uh, clear thinkers without being involved in some sort of self-delusion or self-illusion, then we must focus on the truth, the absolute truth of the Word of God. And the Word of God is defined as truth. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them by means of truth. Thy Word is truth. So the Word of God provides the parameters within which we are going to think. Now what happens in reaction and distraction is that we reject authority. We get involved in some kind of personality conflict with someone. Uh, Children can react to the authority of their parents. Uh, maybe you get involved in something and with a personality conflict with somebody else, and so you react to something they say or something they do. Uh, you get, uh, as a result of that, you become enmeshed in, in uh, mental attitude sins of, of resentment or anger, so you begin to lose your objectivity. Emotion begins to take, take over, so you get involved in subjectivity, Now you're absorbed with what's going on inside of you. That's the beginning stage of of arrogance, self-absorption. You're focusing on your hurt, the fact that you have somehow been been injured in some way or someone did something or someone is doing something that you don't think they should do and so you're reacting to it. Or maybe it's just that you're getting involved in some good things in life. Sometimes when people start getting blessed by the Lord and 
Uh, they get distracted by the, all the many opportunities they now have for travel and enjoyment and all of these other things, and so they become distracted by the details of life. Well, that's how reversionism begins, is through that reaction and distraction. And then comes the frantic search for happiness. In the frantic search for happiness, we start shifting our focus for meaning and value in life away from doctrine and away from God and onto the details of life. 2 Timothy 3.4 says that, that we become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And this is exactly what we see dominating the thing. Their life is consumed with the pursuit of personal pleasure, comfort, and security. Now, that may take various forms. Maybe for some people that involves work and success at work. For other people, it may involve a lifestyle of partying, drugs, alcohol, uh, immorality. For other people, it may involve uh, uh, excessive attention to sports, whatever it may be. You're looking to something in the creative order as the, as the source of happiness. So now that you have divorced yourself from God and the only source of happiness, you put your focus on something in creation, some of the details of life, and you start pursuing that in order to find happiness in life. Contentment and real happiness is based on what is in your soul, not based on circumstances, events, situations, or people. And if it is not based on what is in your soul, then you will become enslaved to what is outside of you, what is apart from you. So the third stage, then, is soul poverty. Soul poverty. And we see this in Psalm 106.15. In Psalm 106.15, we have a rehearsal in the psalm of what took place in, the, in Israel's history. So hold your place here in Judges 2, and let's turn over to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. In the first 12 verses of Psalm 106, there is a rehearsal of what God did in the history of Israel in bringing them out of Egypt, how He delivered them from slavery, how He brought them through the Red Sea, how He delivered them from the armies of Pharaoh. And in conclusion, it says in verse 12, then they believed His words. Incidentally, that is a strong statement of their faith in God that the Exodus generation was primarily a generation of believers. They believed His word. And they sang His praise. Notice the contrast with verse 13. They quickly forgot His work. See, this is the same thing we're seeing in the judges' generation. They quickly forgot. They've seen all the empirical evidence. The Red Sea, they saw all... In fact, before that, they saw the, the uh, ten plagues on Egypt. They saw the deliverance from Egypt. Then going through the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptian army. They went out into the wilderness and they began to go through a little adversity. And they quickly forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel. In other words, doctrine was no longer a priority for them, and they immediately rejected God and ignored doctrine. They became distracted by the adversity in their life, and they put their hope for happiness on the details of life. And they wanted to go back to Egypt, and all of a sudden, instead of focusing on all the abuses and horrors and misery of what was going on in Egypt, they just remember, oh, we had good food. Out here in the desert, all we have is manna. It tastes the same. It may nourish us, but we have manna day in and day out. And it's always the same. Of course, our clothes aren't, don't ever wear out, so we don't get to buy new clothes. And now for some folks, I know, especially I've run into a few women, that's a major catastrophe if they can't buy new clothes. Even if the old ones wouldn't wear out, they would, uh, they would immediately have a little spiritual test there. But they, uh, they wanted to go back to everything, all the good things they remembered in Egypt. And what happens is they begin in their imagination to blow these things out of proportion until they, were, they completely forgot all the negatives and remembered all the positives. And that became their source of happiness. We want to go back and enjoy the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. They, didn't want, they were tired of their food 
and they wanted to go back to that which was a little uh, higher cuisine, had a little more seasoning in it. And I can understand or sympathize with that, but its a focus is to put happiness on a detail of life. So they craved intensely in the wilderness, verse 14, and tempted or tested God in the desert. So they want food. Now, God answered them. God, if you remember, God sent quail into the camp so that now they had meat to eat. God answered their request. But notice what it says in the second half of verse 15. Now, if you're looking at a New American Standard, you can just take out your pen and scratch out the last three or four words because they're wrong. I can't believe the translator did such an awful job of translating the Hebrew text at this point. He gave them their request. The King James has it correct. King James Version says, He gave them their desire, but He sent leanness into their soul. And that's exactly what the Hebrew says. It is the Hebrew word nefesh there. And nefesh is the word for soul. And it's uh, preceded by a bait prefix, which is the preposition in. And it's followed by the third person plural suffix. So it's clearly he sent leanness into their soul. See, sometimes in discipline, in order to make you understand the emptiness of your desires, God answers your prayers. But the result is that now you have what you thought would bring you happiness and you're empty. It didn't satisfy you. There must be something more. And you have everything you wanted, but there is leanness in the soul. And the word there translated leanness means to be feeble. It means to be weak. It means to be uh, spiritually impotent. And it is very close to the Greek word asthenes that's used to describe spiritual weakness in the New Testament. And it means that though they had what they thought would bring them happiness, they were impoverished in their soul. And they are, they are in worse shape than they were to begin with because they now have what they thought would bring them happiness. And not only are they just as miserable, they're probably more miserable. This leads then to... The fourth stage, which is the emotional revolt of the soul. Now, the soul is made up of five components, and they all interrelate, and we break them apart for academic purposes to understand how the soul functions. We have a self-consciousness, which is the seat of our identity, who we are. We have a mentality, which is where we think, where we reason. We have a volition, where we make our choices. We have a conscience where our norms and standards reside, and we have our emotions. Now, the emotions are the responder to what goes on in the mentality. The mentality is the, the way God designed the soul. We are to be initiated, our actions are to be initiated by thinking, not by emoting. We think, and the result is that our emotions follow along based on what we think. For example, if I were to come running up to you, I'll use an illustration of those of you who have children. Those of you who don't can, can relate, though. And I were to come, come running in the back door of the church and tell you that, that your child was just run over by a car out here on 164, then you would, if you believed that, then that would be a belief in your mentality. What well, emotion would follow from that? An emotion of... Sorrow, sadness, despair, anger, uh, grief, those emotions would flow as a result of what you believe in your mentality. If I were then to come running in or somebody else came running in, no, no, that was a mistake, the car missed them. All of a sudden now you believe the opposite and now what's happened to your emotions? Now you're elated, now you're ecstatic, now you're excited and happy and, and nothing can go wrong the rest of the day. All of a sudden, everything's in perspective. You see, your emotions follow along and respond to what you believe in the mentality of your soul. But what happens in emotional revolt is the emotions start driving the soul, and you start making decisions based on how you feel. And the emotions become the criterion for life, and so you start making all your decisions based on how it's going to make you feel, and that is enslavement to emotion. This leads to an intensification of the whole process of reversionism. 
you are now down to a point where you're emoting all the time and it's very hard for you to concentrate and think and use doctrine, so you become ingrained in negative volition. At this point, it is more and more difficult for you to ever get a focus on the Bible. In fact, what happens is that uh, whenever you hear doctrine, you immediately reject it because it doesn't make you feel good. You have to be... uh, get some sort of worked up state or you have to have some sort of sentimentality associated with, with uh, Christianity and the Bible or it just isn't going to work for you anymore. This leads in turn to the sixth stage, the blackout of the soul. And at this stage, the Scripture says that, that we become, our souls become enshrouded in darkness again and that rather than operating on the truth of God's Word that what happens is we have sucked in so much false doctrine that we are walking in darkness. The Greek term talks, matayotes, in Ephesians 4.17, talks about the fact that, that Gentiles or unbelievers in that context are walking in the emptiness or the vanity of their mind. See, once you have rejected doctrine and you start by the time you get down to ingrained negative volition, you're starting to flush doctrine out of your soul. And whenever you have a vacuum, nature abhors a vacuum, what you suck in is a lot of false doctrine. And that's what's going on in Israel. They've rejected God and now they're just sucking in all of the false doctrine, all the false concept, all the false values of the Canaanite culture surrounding them. And this in turn produces a situation in the soul called the hardness of the heart in Scripture. It produces calluses or scar tissue on the soul so you become less and less sensitive to God's leading in your life. And so now, God, in order to get your attention, God can't just tap you on the shoulder. He's got to pick up a baseball bat and rear back and hit you soundly between the eyes with that baseball bat just to get your attention. But what happens is you go further and further in negative volition and the hardness of the heart until that baseball bat doesn't even phase you. And as soon as God stops hitting you with the baseball bat, you go, I managed to survive that. I guess life's going to work out after all. God's not really mad at me. And you've distorted the whole practice. Scar tissue of the soul then leads to reverse process, reversionism, when you are so so sunk in pagan thought that you don't know uh, light from darkness anymore, right from wrong, you've totally reversed everything, and you are living and operating and thinking no different from any unbeliever. Now when we get to look at Israel, they've gone through this process, and so God is going to respond to their apostasy. And we see this in verse 14, that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And He gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Life is going to be miserable for them. Now, I want you to notice something. I talked earlier about a literary device called a chiasm. There is also another way of organizing material called an inclusio. That's the Latin term, and it is related, of course, to the English word uh, inclusion. Inclusio. And inclusio is when you have a phrase here, and then an exact repetition of that phrase there, shows that the author is emphasizing everything in between. And that's exactly what we have between verse 14a and 20a. Notice 14a, and the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And then in verse 20, so the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Everything in between is a description of God's anger. Now, There's a lot involved in understanding the anger and the judgment of God in those verses, and we certainly don't have time to get into all of that this morning, so we'll have to stop and come back and look at how the anger of the Lord is a function of His justice, it's a function of His integrity and the operation of divine grace. Because in the middle of this, we'll notice that 
God, even as a result of God's anger, his, the operation of the judgment of God from the Supreme Court of Heaven, God still deals with the uh, apostatized pagan Israelites in grace. Verse 18 is right in the middle of this. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Now, the interesting thing about this is that there's no repentance in Israel when God raises up the judge. There is no mention of that between verses 17, which describes their turning away from the Lord and their disobedience, and verse 18, God's deliverance. See, what happens in verses 16 and 17, God hits them about five times with that baseball bat right between the eyes. Then He stops. Then He gives them a a breather out of grace, and they sit back and they go, oh, we survived. I guess that's not too bad. We'll just keep doing things the way we've been doing it. We'll thank the Lord for delivering us, but we just go right back into the same sinful, carnal patterns. So God has to take out the baseball bat again. And that is a principle that we will learn is the next time is the relationship of God's grace, love, compassion, trying to understand terms like the anger of the Lord because this implies certain things about God that really aren't true. And the question is whether or not God is an emotional God operating on emotion, which is what that sounds like, but that's not really what the text means. So we'll come back and look at that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the opportunity to be challenged by the truth of Your Word today and to be warned about the dangers of reversionism the dangers of turning our back on You and becoming complacent towards doctrine, and that that will lead to the rejection of of doctrine and hostility toward You. Father, we pray that we might be, be warned by these things and be honest and objective in our own lives, that we might make sure that our affections are set upon You and that You are the highest priority in our lives, that we might live for the purpose that You have designed, that we might serve You with all of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.